For the ones who work hard to ensure their crew can always go the extra mile. And the ones who get in early so everyone can go home on time. There's Granger, Offering professional-grade supplies backed by product experts so you can quickly and easily find what you need. Plus, you can count on access to a committed team ready to go the extra mile for you. Call, click Grainger.com, or just stop by. Granger For the ones who get it done. Every team, every topic, everywhere, this is Believe. Hey everyone, on this episode of Six Degrees with Mike McKenna, I'm joined by Todd Brown. You're going to hear some unbelievable stories in this one about guys like Ed Belfour, Curtis Joseph, Mika Kippersoff, Dominic Hashik, Chris Mason, Evgeny Dabakov. Have I named enough yet? I think you're going to enjoy it. Have fun. So I think that you and I talking with Todd Brown here, currently of Vaughn Hockey, formerly of Bauer for many years, brief stint at CCM. We first met in 2002. And do you remember who the Bauer rep was that sent me to see you? Probably Rick Orpik. It was. So I was playing at St. Lawrence University and I had been using Bauer gear for a couple of years. And Mr. Orpik said, you need to go to Mississauga. I got a guy there who's going to set you up. You can see the factory. Get your gear for next season. And that's how we met. Yeah. So we probably did like 15 years or something. I don't know. 14. That's a lot to think about, isn't it? It's been a long run. It's yeah. A good run, though. Your start in the industry, it's probably something I don't think we've ever even really talked about. How did you end up on the development and the gear rep side of things? Because you were a goalie growing up. Right. How'd that transition happen? Well, when I realized that after my third year of junior B that I wasn't really going anywhere. I had some <laughs> opportunities to play in the East Coast League. And at that time, it was a, I think there was eight teams or whatever. It was a small fraction of what it is today. I just realized, you know what, I'm going to, I'd go on with school. So I went to Niagara uh, College, got my uh, associate's degree in marketing. And uh, I knew I if I couldn't make it in playing hockey, I, I, I'd want to do something in hockey and I turned to the gear side because it's always something that interests me and I started part of my college program was a one-year paid co-op and uh, I had the fortunate uh, situation of hooking on with Brian's at the time which is owned by Stomp family which just separated from Brian Heaton at the time when Brian Heaton broke off to start Heaton so I actually interviewed with both Brian's and Heaton Brian's was in Kingsville. Heaton was in Harrow, which was, I don't know, 15, 20 minutes down the road. And Stomp ended up being a name down the road, too. It, it did. Like, all these names keep resurfacing, right? It did. Yeah. And I just had a better feeling that Brian's was going to be a better fit for me um, because they were more pursuant of the fact that they wanted to do something with me on a co-op situation where, where uh, Dennis Smith and, and Brian Heaton at the time where the two principal people at Heaton um, were, yeah, well, come what may, we see what we might have for you, where the Brian's people were more pursuant of me working there. So uh, I ended up working for Brian's on that one year when then went back, finished my, my, my uh, education and Brian's offered me a position, but because it was such a family run company, um, I didn't get a sense that there was a future for me. So I ended up moving on from there. Did you go straight to Bauer after that? No, I actually spent some time with a small a goalie brand, niche brand by the name of Forrester. 
I remember Forrester. Yeah. I had a couple catalogs that had their stuff in it. So Forrester yeah. had... Man, we're digging up all sorts of stuff here. This is good. Yeah. And they, they, they were a brand that had uh, a strong following in, in in Southern Ontario. I mean, there were guys for the Sabres. That, was it... Uh, Rob... Did Draper wear their stuff? Somebody wore Forrester stuff. Marcus Ketterer. Okay. And yeah. who was a big-time prospect for the Sabres who was in Rochester was... Uh, uh, he was a Forster guy, Rob Stauber. Yeah. Huge with the LA Kings with the painted right. pads. I remember, uh, Tony Piacente was an artist from Toronto who actually painted the pad. He, he airbrushed the pads, which is probably the first that I recall in the 26 plus years I've been in the business of anybody having, um, graphics on pads other than a standard graphic. Was Stauber trying to one up Rudy, you think? Um, kind of. I mean, and really I, had some unbelievable gear. I think it was Colin Forrester who was trying to one up that, saying, "What can we do? Like everybody has these graphics that they apply, cut, and so what can we do different and visually more impacting?" And he hired this tr- Toronto artist Tony to actually airbrush uh, a fanned out. Uh, cards on Rob Stauber's pads. I remember those. How'd they hold up? Very well. Um, you know, obviously when you're layering paint on the facing of synthetic PU leather, um, it tends to crack and break down over time and it, it gets heavy because you're putting layers upon layers upon layers. Uh, but Rob never seemed to care. He just thought it was really cool that he could come out with this, these cool, this cool painted equipment. And it was something that we could do from a cut and sew application because of the intricacy of the design. So Forrester did very well in, in, like I said, in Southern Ontario and small pockets within the U.S. Uh, it was a small niche brand, but eventually the funding came to an end and the bank went, uh, the company went bankrupt. I moved on to Cooper at the time as a product manager and quickly. Were you in the goalie division at this time? I was in the goalie division at the time, yeah. And uh, I quickly moved up. um, How old were you at this point? 25. Yeah. Yeah. So I moved up pretty young gun. We're bringing them in. (laughs) I brought them in and I ended up hiring Colin Forrester to be a designer at Bauer in the goalie division. So Colin originally employed me at Forrester, but I brought him over to Bauer because obviously his vision, his ability to uh, design and pattern goal equipment. And I thought he'd be a good fit with our team. And it worked out, worked out well for many years. He was Colin was behind a lot of the reactor lines that were that was successful. Never knew this. Like the reactor fours, fives, threes. Correct. So the guy who made Forrester gear was behind the reactor five that I wore for so long, like five seasons worth. He's, made a, I made a throwback set to those last season. Yep. Yeah, which make me proud. Yeah. <laughs> they might be coming again here in a little Stevie bit. Stevie Dillon, Niagara Ice Dogs did yeah. throwback stuff. So, yeah. you know, that, that all makes me proud because that's part of my heritage and my lineage. Right. Because um, the Reactor 5 was a Cooper pad first. It was. Yeah. yeah. When I start, I started with Cooper and then we went to what we call Bowerization in 97. I had the first set of Bauer pads in St. Louis. That was a, yeah. that was a Herculean task <laughs> to, to Bowerize everything. Um, and that, and that, and that turned out, uh, you know, Colin was one of three product designers. So I'm not saying that it was all Colin 
Forrester behind the designs of the product. We had a guy by the name of Brian Shikatani, Lee Mackey, who's still with Bauer, um, Bob Rook. Um, I managed those guys. They were the designers behind the product. I wrote the product brief, the must-haves, the nice-to-haves, you know, the price point that we we're trying to achieve, um, where we fit in a competitive landscape, and they would come back to me and present to me their product designs. And we, we had a very special team. And there's a reason we had a lot of successes because we work cohesively well as a unit. That's cool. So you did this for a few, few years. And how long did it take you to get into the the pro rep side, though? Because it wasn't long before you were working with some of the big names in the NHL. Yeah, it was almost immediately with, you know, obviously at Brian's, um, they, Darren Stomp, who was one of the, the you know, the, with the principal owners of the company when I was there at the time, um, he felt that he needed to break me into the pro business. So I dealt with guys uh, like Sean Burke, Ron Hextall, um, cut my teeth with those guys. You know, uh, Stomper kind of let me, um, you know, feel my way through it, you know, take my slaps. And I say, were they giving it to you? Yeah, yeah they did. guys at that I, point. I was a young, I was a young guy. You know, I wasn't quite finished college at the time. This was mid nineties, right? Yeah. And they're like, who is it? Who's this guy? Right. We're used to dealing with Stomper. Why is he sending this kid down to deal with us? But you know, one thing that Brian's taught me is that if you are the face of the brand in the field, there should not be a question that you are unable to answer. So, when I first started my co-op position, you know, it was really cool because I got to work in the cutting department. I got to work in the sewing department. I learned to sew, hand stitch and work a serger machine, sewing machine. I learned to stuff pads. I learned to lace a glove because their philosophy was if you don't know how it's put together or know the ins and outs of the properties of the materials that we use, then you can't answer these questions that these goalies have. So, you know, it was very hands-on. And by the time I, you know, learned all the ins and outs of the different processes and they felt comfortable that I was, I had enough knowledge behind the materials and the processes and everything that they would put me out in the field to, and this isn't a short period of time. This isn't 12 months. So this is a hurry up offense. Yeah. <laughs> and, um, you know, then I'm dealing with guys like Ron Hextall and Sean Burke and Trevor Kidd. So, were um, you behind? For, were you involved in some of those iconic sets that they had? Eight fifty one, Thief, Hook, A Light, A Light, uh, Ultra Light, like those flame pads that Trevor Kidd had. Yeah, Midnight Series. We were the yeah. first ones to do black with one yeah. accent with the crescent moon. That was I the logo. All that, and yeah. I still. Talk to uh, Jaws at Brian's nowadays. I'm like, dude, you got to bring back the Midnight Series, especially that iconic Half Moon logo that we had on that. That was awesome. Didn't Hextall have kind of a unique glove, if I remember right? It was. Um, he had no back thumb poly in his catcher, so he could really torque the glove because, uh, you know, obviously he's one of the masters at playing the puck. And he felt that if, if he had a thumb insert in the back of his thumb, that would impede the, how far his thumb would move back and control a stick. So we eliminated that whole back thumb poly from his, from his catch glove. He also had a floating tee in his gloves as well, skate lace in the pocket, everything right. that made it soft to collapse to get a better handle of the stick. Incredible. But, yeah. I mean, I'm thinking of that Trevor Kidd set and the Sean Burke whale set and all these from back in the day. What was going through the minds of the guys at Brian's when 
these orders came in? Were, was the, were the people there thinking of the design, or is that something that came out of Trevor's head? You know, at the time, it's not like it is now with with Rio and 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 the staff that they have there. Back then, it was, um, you know, I don't think they thought much about it. They just produced it. Here's what I want. Let's do it. And quality yeah. control back then in the days of Brian's was paramount. We had a guy running the plant by the name of Jeff Sunderland, who was a stickler for quality. And actually I worked quality for a while too, where if a glove didn't feel right, he gave me total latitude to reject it. And the glove people would be pissed. Like, are you serious? Like I've been lacing gloves for five, six, seven years and this kid's rejecting gloves. And (laughs) You know, you who the hell's this guy? Yeah, they're yeah. like, but you, I had a feel, right? right? And I know that the, the how the gloves should feel, and if something didn't feel right, or if a pad didn't feel flex right, or something looked off, I would reject it before we get to the shipping department. Even today, with how mechanized everything's become, do you still see a variance in the product at the end when it comes out? Yeah, because a lot of it, you know, whether it's you know, a lot of components are being pre-purchased and, and, and put together. There's still a human element to it. And there will be variances. You know, there's people have good days. People have bad days. And they may be on or off. And, and you know, it's one thing with a glove. You know, like, you go through this a lot of times with pro bullies. And you've been through it before. You've lived through the nightmare. One glove comes in, it feels great. The next glove comes in, it just doesn't feel right. And I look at lacing a glove. Like Timmy Thomas's pads, right? Oh, that's a whole different <laughs> podcast. Like we go off. I, I'm sure you want to get into that at some point. But getting to a glove, like when, when I laced a glove, you, you would hold it in your hand like a baby. And as you laced it, there were certain- Were you comfortable holding your daughters when they came out because very, of your pre- previous experience Because I'm used to lacing gloves, gloves right? Yeah. <laughs> so you, 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 you create, it's like you're cradling the glove and as you're lacing it and using the pliers to, t- to put tension onto the laces, you know, you gotta realize that if you pull too tight in certain situations, it pulls the components too tight together and then it doesn't flex right, it doesn't feel right. You know, you have, you just can't sit there and just look at the baby. You have to give it love. So when you, same thing with the glove, if you're putting a glove together, you have to be cognizant of what you're doing. You just can't go through the rhythm and stare at the ceiling and, oh, that's a great tune and sing along. You know, you have to pay attention to what you're doing and the tension you're putting on the laces because if you don't, it'll affect the way the glove closes, the way the glove, fle- the glove feels. And it's a, it's a human element. And you know, at the end of the day, when you said to me in the past, something doesn't feel right with this glove. I know probably what happened is that they didn't put enough tension to detail behind what they were doing at the time they're putting the glove together. And when you're putting so many parts together. Because how many parts are in a glove? You know, you're going to get different opinions on that. You know, just a ballpark on these things. You know, you're looking at over 200 pieces between embroidery, heat transfers, uh, all the different componentry that go into it, the lacing and everything, eyelets, all, all that different, all that different things so you know there's a lot of pieces that go together and they all affect one another yeah it's 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 actually a science and like to your point you know the, no matter if you're purchasing pieces and bringing them in there's still somebody assembling it at the end of the day and it's the assembly that really makes a difference between a good product and a bad product so going back when you went to bauer and it went from the cooper transition to bauer mm-hmm. 
at that time frame, what were some of the advances in technology that came in that, that started to really change the game that you can think of? Well, at Bauer at the time, we were one of the first companies that had pre-cut foams. So we had half profile phones. So if you looked at the Reactor 5, for example, uh, the shin rolls. Great they pad. Weren't, they weren't stuffed. My favorite. Yeah. Those rolls were actually half rolls of foam that were pre-cut that we ordered that way. And we would actually have a machine, and you visited the plant, right. that we would um, you put the foam inside this machine, click a pedal like an accelerator and it would shoot the foam in through, through a nozzle into the carcass of the pad. So it was perfectly stuffed. It was shot right in through forced air, compressed air. And so by this point, nobody was using deer hair anymore, right? We were at we the were time. Still at that we time. were, yeah, for certain, you know, side gussets, um, but not for knee rolls or vertical okay. rolls or for shin rolls or anything like that. It was all pre-cut foams. Um, maybe boot. The out, inside outside boot gussets before we got into pre cutting foams. A lot of that we would use deer hair or um, K POC at the time, which is what you'd find in stuffed animals nowadays, you know, that uh, that that type of material. Um, but then we got more advanced and just started pre cutting foams for the boots and, and whatnot. And that's uh, how it's kind of evolved. By that point in time, you were starting to work with some pretty big guys on Bauer's side, too. And I think back to it, and the first thing that comes up to me, somebody who was absolutely dominating the league, who happened to be named Dom, Dominic Hasek. Mm -hmm. You got to work with him while he was in Buffalo. What was he like to first work with? And then in terms of his equipment, what was unique about what he did? He was an innovator. So he was wearing... Mishmash of products, and at that time it was CSS pads, which was a Cinderella shoe shop, right? Correct, yeah. out, of, out of Buffalo area, Niagara Falls area. Mitch Cornell loved that reference. Yeah, that's one of his favorites. Well, yeah. yeah, exactly. And and they tailored to really what Dom wanted, and and Dom was an innovator. Um, I remember the first time I met him, we had him in our factory, Mississauga, and he was very clear and concise about how he wanted his product to feel and perform. He's one of the first. So if I have to dissect his product, what made it unique? There was distinctions about every piece. His blocker, he had the hand very high up on the board because he goes, I push the puck. I push the puck. He wanted more of the blocker at the bottom of the palm of his hand so he could extend out further in the paddle down position because Dom was always about the puck's perspective from the ice level up. I got to look, think like a puck. I'm elevating from ice level up. How can I get my equipment out further at the puck to take the trajectory away from the puck? So he felt by higher hand position, he could get more blocker at the bottom of his hand, paddle down to get out. But also he thought, why do I need more blocker above my hand when I have my chest and arm bicep floaters, which overlap? So I don't, was getting more reach out of having it on the bottom. Getting more reach. I mean, I I was the same way. I built my blocker the same way. I had a one-inch offset like his that I saw he was getting more reach from it. But I never thought about it being from the puck's angle before. He it's always really thought about from the puck's perspective. Always. Every and time that, I talk to him. And that's what guys talk about now, whether it's aerial angle or box control mm -hmm. or head trap, all these things. They're all different words for essentially what Dom was doing, it seems he, like. He was ahead of the game. He, so that was the blocker. Going on to the glove, he's one of the first guys, well, 
you know, the trend seemed to initiate out of Europe, flat palm poly. So the finger side of your glove, you know, North America, a lot of the goalies like to pre-curve, they're curled, right? Baseball style kind of, right? Yeah. Right. Yeah. Dom was flat. So when I hold my glove, you know, whether you're 12, 2, or 3 nowadays, right? Back then, you know, most everybody held it out lower position, right? Dom looked like, how can I cover, maximize my coverage? Well, if my fingers are curling, I'm not maximizing my coverage. So he had actually a flat palm poly assembly put in his glove where the finger side was totally flat. It looked like a big stop sign. Because <laughs> he's like, it's not practical to think that you're catching shots that are that are flying so quickly at you. If I'm lucky to get my T-trap in front of it, it's going to settle in, into it. I want to show you the biggest coverage I can. So if I have flat fingers, I'm going to cover more net. And he, Dom was one of those gloves. Everybody talks about Henrik, who I've had the pleasure of dealing with for, for many years. Dom's like, I don't really even need to close my glove. Because if it's open all the time, the puck's always going to sit in the trap. If I could get to it. If I could just get it in front of the puck, it's not practical to think I'm going to close it and catch it. So why do I need a glove that closes? That's kind of a little known fact that we all know as goalies. And it's kind of a misperception from people that if that puck hits you in the palm of the glove, it's probably not staying in your glove. Right. It's not like a baseball. Like a baseball can hit you in the palm and you can catch it there. It's round. It sticks right there. Yeah. When the puck hits there, with the amount of protection we have, it's bouncing off. Right. So unless it hits the T-trap... It's going somewhere else. Right. So he's definitely ahead of the curve with that. And you'll see that with a lot of guys now who kind of pancake their glove out. Uh, Mike Condon did that a bunch. He, he would spread it as far as he could. Yeah. Um, Hank does it. I think Curtis Joseph did it too, if I remember right, trying to maximize coverage like that. Curtis was different too. He used to move his hand back in the glove. So there was more glove. I know we're on a podcast right now, so it's, it's kind of a mute point for the listeners. But the, his hand used to sit almost on the blocking cuff of the glove just enough that he could get his fingers to close it to trap it but he wanted more glove on the top side of his fingers he's like why would i want my hand sitting all the way in the glove why wouldn't i want the glove to be a further extension of my hand and that's why a lot of people couldn't use a glove that curtis joseph played with because you're like how do you close this thing i'm using fingertip closure because Everything was so far forward. His hand actually, his his knuckle area of the glove, if you could visualize this from a podcast perspective, would actually be sitting almost on the blocking cuff hmm. of the glove. It didn't even really sit inside the palm of the glove. Was it difficult to make things that were this custom? You know, once you get working with a player and you get to realize what they need and you've got the right people in the pro shop, you know, there's a few iterations, but repeatability is a big thing. You know, and that's one thing I always try to pride myself in taking notes and, and pictures and, 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 you know, doing more listening than I do talking and what these goalies want and go back and work with the people in the factory who actually put the product together and sit down with them and put these products together. You know, it's repeatability is a big thing. Once you make something, okay, you made one. Now I'll make a hundred. Or 50 or 25. That's the challenge because it's over and over and over again. And back in the early days, it was a lot more difficult before CAD CAM, right? Right. 
everything, who everything was hand now. cut. Yeah. You know, back nowadays everything's computer cut or yeah. water jet cut or laser cut. So it's it's a lot easier than it used to be in the old days. Yeah. Going back to going back to Dom real quick, just to hit on his pads. See one of the first guys with that did angled tops on the thigh rise because that's another thing I adopted into my pads that I saw him do first. Yeah, uh, amongst other things, you know, I, I saw that his pads would sit a little higher, and I I kind of took all my inspiration from goalies I'd just watch and try to figure out. I remember looking at you know Byron Defoe wasn't a Bauer guy, but I remember seeing that his bootstrap was really loose and that his pad would shift up his legs, and so it would cover more five hole. Right. So that's what I thought. I got to do that. And then the angled tops at Hashikat were his were his pads pretty unique too. Yeah, they were. He, he him and Eddie Belfour used to do the angled tops because when they felt right. when they were in their butterfly, they'd seal better together without you know touching it. They create a better seal. But one thing about Dom's pads is he's pretty much the first guy that I recall having no breaks. So stiff pads from yeah. the boot break right to the top. It was a solid core. There was no breaks in the core whatsoever. Um, and he wanted them to lie flat and seal. And he was genetically built that he could um, play with a pad like that. I had a lot of goals. Yeah, he was freakish. Yeah. There's no question. Just watch the highlights of that No guy. question. So right. there'd be other NHL <laughs> goaltenders. Absolutely that, in a pretzel. When I know? was dealing with Dom at the time, um, and he was starting to have the success that he had, Saying, I want pads like Dom. And I'm like, you know, whether it's Corey Schwab or, you know, Stalankov or different goaltenders going, you can't play in a pad like Dom. Well, no, 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 no. Make him like Dom. Make him like Dom. Then they'd get him and they'd be like, how the heck does he play in these things? These things are like boards on my legs. I'm like, cause you're not built like Dom. Right. You know, he, he knows how the pad should feel on him and how he wanted it to rotate. He's one of the first guys that never used the top thigh strap i adopted you know, that from him too yeah who uses a thigh strap nowadays nobody you know at first we would put it on because he psychologically wanted it there but he always wore it in front of his pants you know he just buckle it together and eventually we took it off um but he was one of those guys like you know i don't need this this does nothing but in fact what it does do is inhibit the rotation of the pad right so i don't need it Take it off. You know, right even down to little things like a stick. You know, you look at the shoulders of a stick. There was like a, it's like a pop bottle with very rounded front and back side. It's kind of a Coke shape, right? Like Coke bottles. Yeah. yeah. And it was to allow for the three finger protectors of his blocker to lay flat on the ice without impeding, you know, movement of, you know, the shoulders, the feel of the stick, right? So he could get the paddle down with the three fingers down, but he even took it one step further where he said, okay, so I've got my paddle to lay flat. The shape of my shoulders allow my blocker to lay flat on the ice as well. But now I got this knob at the end of my handle that elevates the handle of my stick enough for a puck to get under. So what he started doing is cutting the back section of his knob off on the handle of his stick. So if you look on his latter days of his play, he would just have the one side of his state, his ticks, uh, his handle of his stick taped. The backside was cut off. So it would allow a perfectly flat shaft of stick. He Perfect was always seal. thinking of this though. Always. Nothing was by coincidence with him. No. You know, he talked, I, we talked a little bit earlier about how you had Mike Richter too. And I mean, the, 
he looked back as a goalie at pads and iconic sets, and he had some really cool-looking stuff. But he might have had the widest pads I've ever seen. 14 inches a leg. Come on. Yeah. 14 inches wide. We called it... What were they at the at the knee, though? Because they had a cool shape to them, almost, they were right? A, he wanted an A shape to his pads, so he, he called it the bulbous boot. So what we did we used to do is we used to take ether foam or Are hot. you telling me Richter actually called his pads the bulbous boot? The bulbous boot. So, <laughs> so the inside of the pad, we used to That's take hockey. That's ultimate goalie trivia. For you know, it was we used to take <laughs> hockey pant foam, which is ether foam. We used to roll it up in balls and stuff it on the inside of his boot, just the inside, to swell it out to 14 inches. And we used to have to pre-measure it before we sent it off to him because he wanted an A-shaped frame. So wide at the bottom, gradually skinnier towards the top so he could get his knees and his thighs together because he used to, you know, hold his edges, as we call it nowadays, or stand up a little more, right? be a little more patient on his edges. And he wanted man. He pad. could skate too. He, he could skate. Unbelievable skater. Yeah. <laughs> but he wanted the coverage from the lower portion of the pad as wide as possible and pushing the limits. So that's what we made the Mike Ripter bulbous boot. It's unbelievable. I think that was a Reactor Four. Yeah, I remember right. Yeah. What? I've always wondered this though. Was it really necessary to have a Reactor Three, Four, Five, and Six in the line? You know, I was a product manager at that time, and <laughs> Reactor 6 was... Because um, the 6 was the Joseph pad, really, when he was in Toronto, right? Right, the, yeah, kind of. It was yeah, the a serial bowl blocker. Yeah, you know, yeah. We, that Reactor 6 was our series to be innovative. It was right. our platform to, to experiment, if you will. Reactor 5 was our cornerstone of the line. It was tried, tested, and true. Yeah. Guys like Happy Bullen, you know, would wear that, would wear that product. Hashik would wear that product. And it was the line that wasn't going to let you down. And Reactor 4, we kind of weren't, we're, we need a different feeling glove. We need a different shaped blocker. The Bakov was all Reactor 4. Rea- yes. Nabby. Yanni, Richter, Yanni Herme was Reactor Herme. 4. Yeah. And we had the Tower graphic, which yeah. those those guys were more stand-up goalies, yeah. if you cool will. cool graphic, though, too. Yeah. And we called it the Tower graphic. It yeah. tried to make the pad stretch it out, seem taller than it actually was, right? <laughs> and then Reactor 3, we thought, okay, this is really our mid-price point line. We'll give it to Guy Bear. We'll give it to a guy that wears <laughs> something very traditional. And when we picked up, when we picked up Guy, uh, it was perfect because it f- fit along the lines of his heating pads, his Pro 90s, right? It was yeah. knee rolls. Cause if you remember Reactor 5, they're diagonal shitty worse. Yeah. Which Reactor we look back, we look back now though, the Reactor 5 was such a traditional pad by today's standards. Oh, yeah. Which is hilarious to think, you know, like it was still kind of groundbreaking when it came out back then. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. And, you know, Guy Bear was one of my favorite goalies to work with. He was just so easy. That guy was so good. He could play in anything. You know, he was a quick convert into Bauer. And, and you know, he really, <laughs> that was our volume line, Reactor 3 at the time. And he, he was a good ambassador to have representing it the whole graphic presentation i think stevie dylan did a reactor three graphic on one of his ice dog pads this year you know like the half moon shape it was it's cool there's i'm sure there's a few other goalies that have paid tribute to it and everybody used to say why no reactor two 
Well, I don't know because <laughs> we kind of ran out of six, five, four, three, and one was our opening price point. Yeah. And I don't know. There was just no space for a two, I guess. I've got to ask this, and I'm not going to ask you anything specific with it in terms of numbers, but was there a lot of cash flying around the goalies back in the day then? Not as much as there. Because I think there's this been. perception that goalies are just making millions off endorsements. And there is money out there, but mm-hmm. was is was there a certain time frame though where there was kind of an arms race? Yes, because there were, used to be a lot of companies involved in the mid two thousand than there is now. You know, I'd say yeah. back to two thousand and so two thousand ten, two thousand eight. That was kind of uh, where things really started to escalate out of control. Was it tough to deal with that from the from the rep side? For me. If the first thing out of a player's mouth was the endorsement side of it, I I knew that the next brand that came along that offered something better, I was out. So it always, always came down to product. Right. We never got caught up into paying big dollars. Yeah, I, you know, back in the day when we wanted to get Curtis Joseph out of Louisville and, um, you know, Hashik into being a brand ambassador and different guys like that, the dollars weren't what they were back in, you know, 2000s when I said that, that time frame. Um, but, you know, we paid it because, the, you know, it was a brand driver, you know. Would you say the majority of guys, though, really would go with a brand that they liked a product first and foremost and then whatever came after that was just gravy? Yeah, a lot of it. You know, a lot I mean, of there had to be a couple guys out there, though, that were just chasing the buck, I'm oh, sure. Oh, there was a lot of guys that were chasing the buck, and a, a lot of it was their agents chasing the buck. So they played, you know, back then there was more goalie companies, right? right? I mean, now, we're streamlined now. There's like four of us. Yeah, right. So back then there was, you know, a lot more than that. Yeah. <laughs> um, and uh, you, you know... They, the agents would play brand against brand against brand. And at some point you had to realize what's right for the brand. And, 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 you know, like if, if I'll take this for example, if Patrick Waugh ever switched in the Bauer, they know it would be a cash grab, right? There's certain, you know, there's certain guys who would not resonate because they've been one brand for so long. They, they know it was a cash grab and it almost looked like, you know, we thought it was not a good marketing strategy to be, throwing around money, getting guys to switch. It had to be predicated on the likes of our product and what they could do for our brand. And did their persona resonate outside of the playing area? For example, a Henrik Lundqvist. New York, New York might not be a great hockey market per se from an amateur hockey standpoint, registration standpoint, or retail environment. But Hanky sells a lot of product mm-hmm. in Sweden. Right. So, you know... It's the same thing with, you know. He's a big-time driver on NBC when he's on the national same, television, everything else like that. Yeah, right, the television market. It's the yeah. same thing with Kipper stuff, right? Right. Kipper was a wallflower. He never did media interviews. <laughs> he, he, you know, he he he's a fly-under-the-radar type of guy. But for us, it opened the eyes to a lot of good young goalies in Finland when we picked him up and helped open the door to get those guys. And... Kipper, same thing. It was just, he just liked the product. We he liked the service and what we did, what we were able to do for him. Let's talk about him for a bit because 
he was a guy who'd use gear right into the ground, right? Mm-hmm. I mean, how long would he use a set of gear for? The, until the equipment manager had to take it out of his stall. Like physically take it out of there. Take it out and he would actually <laughs> hide it, put it in a pro shop to be sold, throw it in the garbage, whatever he had to do. I was dealing with that time with uh, Mark DiBasquale and, and Mark would be like, you know, um, yeah, Kip won't switch. I have to literally pull the stuff out of his stall and he'd come in going, where's my pads? Right there. Well, no, those are the new ones. Where are my old, where are my pads? They're gone, Kip. You got to get into these. Like it's they're they're done. So the equipment guys are probably sick of repairing them. I would imagine at that point. You know, yeah, there is little things that would go wrong with them, um, but for the most part, you know, they were just they knew it was a safety issue. They were breaking down, or he'd be complaining about bad goals because the rebounds weren't coming off the product like he normally would anticipate. Right? Well, yeah, it's everything's been uh, broken down. So you're not going to get the same type of rebound trajectory off the product. So you'd let out errant rebounds that normally you wouldn't let out because the product failed you. So they're doing what was in the best interest of the goalie, but the goalie was so used to the product that they didn't want to give it up. How many sets of gear were guys using? I mean, was it kind of the typical two pads, four gloves and blockers for a long time? Because... Now we're starting to see a lot more gear used, it seems like. Right. What's been the projection of that over time? It's It's been huge. It's threefold, fourfold. You know, I had, remember the one year, when we were talking about this earlier at dinner tonight, Chris Mason in St. Louis, when he was a starter there, he went through the same set of pads, Vapor X60s, okay, all one season into the playoffs and then took him over to the world championships with them. And I was so impressed by that. I actually had him send him back to Bauer. And I'm sure if you talk to some of the people that you deal with at Bauer, cause I'm not there anymore. Um, they probably still have those pads around in the office in the museum. Bronzed them. <laughs> because you know, the, trying, we got to reverse engineer this set and just, see what we did right. <laughs> yeah. You know, it's like part performance, part psycho, mostly psychological that, I can't give these things up. You know, I'm having such a great year and they just feel like a natural extension of my body. And I remember talking to Mace about things like that. But now, you know, I'm, I'm with Vaughn now and you talk to guys like, you know, I deal with Peter Morazic. He's gone through five sets of pads and 10 sets of gloves and he's played what? 30 some odd, 30 some odd games at this point, 35, 36 games at this point, you know, a set of pads every seven games, eight games. So obviously it's a guy who likes a new feeling of his pads. I imagine a new feeling of his pads and gloves. And, you know, he just uh, likes them to feel a certain way. And once they start to feel a little sloppy or a little loose or not quite the same as new, it's time for time for a new set. And that's not to say that the product's broken down or failing. It's just a priority of his. And I think then a lot of the younger goalies coming up feel the same way. I can't, I'm not saying all of them do, because there are certain goalies who still like to, no, I've got this exactly where I like it. I really hate breaking in new gear. Yeah. But I think the majority of goalies nowadays like new gear. Who else do you have in your stable right now? Yeah, I've got um, 10 NCAA Division One men's and women's teams. I've got five NHL teams um, and three uh, CHL teams. So um, it's a good cross-section of 
of goalies that I deal with. We at Vaughn, we do very well with our pants and chest and arms. Um, our product, uh, you know, pads and gloves speak for themselves. We got two, two very good lines in our SLR, two in our, 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 our V8 and the new V, V9 stuff looks fantastic. So, um, yeah, you know, we're a pretty established brand. Um, and it's, it's, it's been going well. So you guys are using a lot of carbon fiber now, right? Yeah, you know, it's, it's, it's kind li- of finally worked its way into goalie gear. It's a little more expensive. Um, it's lighter. It's lighter. It doesn't break down as quick. It retains its shape. Um, strategically used, it gives you more pop, which means it gives you more uh, propulsion on impact. So, you know, you get bigger rebounds to kick it away from your blue which paint area. Which For anybody like. that's listening that thinks bigger rebounds are a problem, right? I have never subscribed to that. I always want the puck as far away from me as I can get it as quickly as possible. And, so, that, and that's kind of something that has only become in vogue in the last several years. People caught on to that. Right. You know, and everybody's using different materials to um, accomplish that. And carbon fiber is one of the ways that, that we use it strategically layered with the different foams, the, the HD foams or the Evazote foams that we use to accomplish that. Over all the years you've done this, have there been any goalies that you think – I bet this guy could just take this right off the shelf and use it. I mean, like a strictly stock pad from the shelf. You know, I think Dom was that good. Really? Yeah, I think that he just he could he could have well look at his look at his his career trajectory in terms of product. Cooper, Bryant's, CSS, you know, Bauer. Um, great saves. Do you ever have those? Great or is that saves. No, he. <laughs> TP, TPS, you know, yeah. um, he just dialed it in to make him that much better. But I think if you just issued him equipment, he could have played in it. You know, there's other guys that I dealt with who were, uh, took it to the, to the extreme, like at Belfort. I dealt with him when he was one of the first guys when he was wearing Miller stuff and he converted over to Cooper. Yeah. And then, you know, we tried to keep him happy when Glenn Miller wasn't making his product anymore. And, um, you know, he's one of the first guys who, to the best of my knowledge, the innovator of the floating tea trap. Yeah, that's right. I remember seeing that for the first time and thinking, what's going on here? Right. It's not connected to the, it's only skate lace behind it. Right. Yeah. The angle tops the pads, to your reference yeah. earlier. He's one of the first guys I remember that, the higher hand position on the blocker, like Hashik. I'd love to talk gear with him. That's one guy that I looked at a lot because he was playing for the, Blackhawks, I grew up in St. Louis. Mm-hmm. So he'd come to town and it was the same thing, whether it was the sticks, pads, you name it. And, and even as his career went on, I wrote a piece for this for Ingle Magazine about how he changed his career, went from being a really wide butterfly really early in his career to a little bit more upright as he got older. And part of that was based on his body, his back was having problems, but he was constantly evolving and innovating. And I mean, did, did some of the things that he or other goaltenders bring to you as a rep make their way into the product lines? Always. There was always some element of what they brought that would make its way into the line. Um, you know, one interesting story I had with Ed and we brought him into our old, um, Bauer factory on Eastgate Parkway. We were there till like, I think, the wee hours of the morning and we had pucks and he was throwing it at different densities of foam, whether it's HD 80, HD uh, 115, 
um, LD foams and throwing pucks. We put a board of foam against the wall and you'd see how far it would bounce. I'm going, what are you trying to achieve by this? Because this is not really <laughs> replicating what this would do when it's layered and when it's on your leg and it's in a game situation. And I would be like, well, you know, this one seems to die when I throw it. I'm going, okay. And he goes, this one bounces further. So which one do you think we should use? And we just like, here we go round and round. And it's like 1230 at night. And I'm like, Ed, you have to fly out tomorrow morning early. And really, I don't know where we're, where we're going with this, but, um, you know, he was one of those guys who just wanted to get it right. It's still and pretty give him cool. Every advantage. It's still you know? pretty cool though that he was that into his gear. But I was so tired. Yeah. I just wanted <laughs> to go. Just gashed you, right? Yeah. At this point, I'm <laughs> yeah. like on. It's okay. We'll, we'll figure some combination out that makes sense for you, but throwing pucks at a foam board placed flat against a wall that has no give is not going to give you any indication of how the puck's going to react. Where was, was this like in his basement? Where no, were this you? was at the factory. At the factory itself. So okay. we would fly him It would have been better if it was in his basement. Oh, no. Yeah, no. Yeah, no. This was at the factory, but it was like at night, at midnight, and we're going through this. and The janitors he, are cleaning up the place. Oh, and they're still long throwing enough. pucks. He, they're long. I mean, it's crickets outside. It's it's every sleep. Everybody who should be sleeping is sleeping, except for us. We're throwing pucks at the wall. So you've done this for a long time, and I, I'm wondering if you can dig in your bank here and think of one thing that was an absolute home run that you may not have expected to be, and then one thing that you thought was going to be game-changing and just was a dud and did not work. <laughs> yep. <laughs> um, you got one for both. <laughs> yeah, game-changing which is a dud and did not work. Vapor 30 gold pads. I tried them. I tried my best with those, man. I think a lot of goalies did. Peter Buda, I was the only guy who made them work. And to this day, if you ask Boots, he'll tell you that was his favorite pad. That's unbelievable. I and could not get those. To, I like the glove and the blocker a lot. Right. But I couldn't get the pads to go. You know, and you look at the way blockers are being designed, you know, in, in something close to your heart, the Bauer line. Right. Um, I think it's the the new is it two X blocker? I think so. It's yeah. a thin profile, and it's I got a couple demos apparently coming at some point. It, yeah, it's, it's basically the vapor. It's a vapor blocker, <laughs> right? Yeah. And I I reached out to somebody who I'm still friends with at Bauer, and I said, "Oh, you brought the old vapor thirty profile back." He goes, "It took a lot of convincing." He goes, "But it made sense." And I said, yeah. "You're right, it does." Yeah, that blocker made sense. Yeah, yeah. Um, so you know the whole goal, the whole vapor thirty gold pad premise. And I remember going around and showing retailers, not so much pros this, but retailers this. And they were like, wow, this thing, dude, is so cool the way it looks. But you got to flatten it out. Flatten it out. You know, you can't have these elevations. And I'm like, well, the elevations are because the designer thinks they're really cool looking. And that will help differentiate our product from everything that's out there. And they're like, well, you know, goalies don't like to be shocked into new products. They like to be progressed or graduate into it and i'm like i know but we're trying to make a statement product here and they're like i'm telling you dude if you just flatten this out you've got a home run it's kind of like how the blockade didn't take off because it was ahead of its time it's well, the same way if we would have made the vapor like the feedback that we were receiving 
it probably would have had the same success as the initial launch year Reebok. Wow. Yeah. And, you know, being a manager of a design team. To go to a truly flat face. Yes. Being a manager of a design team at that time, I gave my designers the latitude and I respected where the direction they were going, but it just didn't work. Right. And the whole chamber, the air chamber on impact that it, the air would disperse. We had the vent ports that would blow yeah. the air out. And we, in the marketing videos, we put the blue powder in the chamber and impacted it. And the blue powder would puff out the side <laughs> of the vent ports. Great visuals, great story, great concept. Disney, it was story. <laughs> it just, yeah. it didn't resonate. And, but I'm telling you, the sell-in at retail was great for that product. The sell-through, not so much. Um, a lot of our retail partners were stuck with mo- trying to move that product. Um, so that that had a lot of hype behind it. Yeah. And that was something that disappointed us. But in, in hindsight, and, you know, going into it, I, I had a feeling, a nervous feeling that it wasn't going to succeed because too many people told us that it was just too far ahead of its time. And it just, it was, it was shocking. A product that was a home run. You know, Reactor 6 was a home run. You and know. you didn't really expect it to be? Or was it just kind of an innovative slash? It was our platform to do creative stuff that wasn't the peanut-shaped blocker. Right. You know. The cereal bowl. Yeah. Right. The knee, yeah. fanned out knee rolls. I love that glove, too. The Reactor 6 glove I used for years. That was yeah. a concave, the first concave cuff. Right. Right. A little more recent. You know, I'd have to say the Bauer 1S goal skate, mm-hmm. you know, as part of that. And I looked at that and go, I'm not sure how a cowling list. Well, you remember I brought prototypes out to you. Right. How is this going to work out? You know, it's even when I showed Lundquist it, he was like, it's a nice looking skate. It looks way better than having a cowling on. But he was even skeptical. But it just, it, it was, there's, everybody throws a word game changer around very loosely, but there's very few products that are game changers. And that was a game changer. Isn't it crazy now that when you go to watch youth kids, you hardly see a cowling out there? Right. And this has only been in the last three years. Yeah. Four years. It's unbelievable to think. That goalie skates that didn't have a cowling look so odd to us and out of place before, that's now the normal occurrence. Well, that's what it is. You know, you just, thank you for reminding me of that. Composite goal sticks. Yeah. Louisville was one of the first to have one. And then they had, uh, they went from full composite, which was a red one. And for the name, you know. I remember it had a little grip paddle on it. Yeah, and that was awesome. And I wish I I had one. And I wish I would have kept it. I was working at Bauer at the time and I had one. And I thought, this stick is really, really cool. I'm going to, it's going to kill me not to remember the name of that. But then they came out the following year with one that had wood inserts to replicate a wood feel. And that was really cool too. And then we came out with Vapor 30. So we weren't the, Bauer wasn't the first, but we were the first to do it right. Yeah. And we crushed it. I was in there for, I was in composite sticks, I think seven years ago. Yeah. First year they, maybe the second year they came out, I had them. And the only reason we didn't do it for you sooner is because the, the molds were cost prohibitive. Yeah. But it took right. that long to make it that we could make the molds a little more palatable from a manufacturing standpoint that we could start offering it up to 
everybody that wanted one. Yeah. Well, and the insanity of the whole thing, though, is that I was playing pro hockey on an NHL contract. And back at the time, I was the team I was playing with didn't want to buy them for me. Right. So I'm trying to play hockey to the best of my ability. And they won't buy me composite sticks that are better than the things on the market because they're too expensive. A lot of teams didn't. The you know? pushback. We the ironic part, though, is that I didn't end up using as many as wood. I no. wasn't breaking them. But like any <laughs> in a traditional market like hockey with a traditional mentality, the mindset is always one of skepticism. And, you know, when we came out with that composite goalie stick, um, there was a lot of pushback to it. Oh, the handles break too easy. And, and a lot of, a lot of those things were reality because we were still fine tuning it, but it was a performance product and it wasn't going to be as durable as a plywood or aspen handle that you would have on a wood stick or, or, or a foam core goal stick, but the balance was going to be better. The kick points were going to be much better to well, shoot. They're, play they're the puck. thinner. You can put pucks out of the ballpark so right. much easier. Everything, every reason why the players were switching to composite sticks right. are the exact same reason why all the goalies are switching to them. Right. It just was a delayed process. Right. And you go into any rink nowadays, and I'm in a rink not, not only for business, but you know because my daughter plays, and I, I attend a lot of goal schools, and as she was growing up playing. I don't see any kids carrying foam core goal sticks. Mm-hmm. Wood? No. They, I don't even know if they exist, to be honest with you. I'm sure there may be one or two brands that still make, you know, at the lower price points, a plywood goal stick. But even foam core, it, it's it's dying a slow, painful death. And that's because every composite only makes sense, especially when you could bring it down to the price points they're bringing it down at now. Maybe not as much carbon fiber content, but fiberglass content, they're durable. Uh, they're lighter. Uh, you can play the puck better with them. Uh, it's just, they're, why won't you use them? And they're so consistent. And consistent. You know, I used to yeah. get a batch of a dozen. The best sticks I honestly ever owned were probably Sherwood PMP or whatever, 9950s or whatever they were way back in the late 90s. were probably mm-hmm. the best ones I ever owned. But I'd get a dozen of them, and probably three to four of them were good. Right. Now, the rest of them would all be off in some way. Because they're hand-shaped. Yeah. And the composites are bang on every single one. Yeah. Because they're out of a mold. They're they're not quite as good as those old school wood ones, but man, they're so consistent. I know exactly what I'm getting out of them. Right. Every time. Yeah. You just tape them up. Yeah. You know, and one thing in the early days, a funny story, is that I used to have, when I would go in to see goalies, whether it's a... Cam Ward back in his Carolina days because he was one of the first guys using our composite goal stick or Thomas Volkun in Nashville. Mm-hmm. Um, you'd go in and they would bitch about the sticks breaking. And I'm like, okay, we'll, we'll look after it. And, um, you know, where's it breaking? And you go through it with them and they're like, I'm not mad that sticks breaking. I'm mad that I spent 20 minutes taping this thing and it broke on the first shot in practice. Okay. Hmm. All right. That's interesting. He's not mad that it broke. He's interested that he wasted time taping it. Then you go to talk to the equipment manager and he's like, these things cost three times the price of a foam stick. And, and I'm like, well, your goalie's not mad that it broke. Yes, he is. I'm like, he's mad because he spent 20 minutes of his time taping it and it broke. He, he He's not mad that the stick broke. He's mad that he wasted time taping the stick that broke in first shot. So it was like, oh my goodness, like the growing pains that we had to cut our teeth with that have now become the norm in the industry. 
You know, it's, it's, it, it's funny to recollect and, and go back and think about those days. You mentioned it here that you've got a daughter playing hockey. That's a goaltender. Mm-hmm. And I've got a daughter who's going to be six. She's learning how to skate. She really wants to play goalie. My wife hates that idea. Ultimate betrayal. She considers, considers it to be right. In my heart of hearts, though, it'd be pretty awesome to share that with her. Something that I've made a living out of. It's been my life's passion. How's it been for you and your daughter to have that relationship? You know, and you know, your wife experienced it on a different level. You being a professional, playing the position and earning a livelihood. You know, I learned I earned a livelihood being in the hockey business. And yeah, we didn't move around town to town like you and your wife have and um and the stress that that puts on a family, but my wife had to deal with me being in hockey. And bringing home whatever pressures or frustrations I had. And then to see me want to have one of our kids in hockey and not only work in it, but then have to go play in it or support our kids. She was frustrated too. Same deal. So she never <laughs> wanted my daughter to um, be play hockey, let alone be a goaltender. And I didn't either. This is a buddy of mine who pushed my daughter into it because... They were on a travel team and uh, they didn't have a goalie. And he was like, you got to have your daughter come out. And I'm like, no, 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 no. And then he eventually had a goalie who wasn't up to their expectations. And they're like, you got to have your daughter come out. And I'm like going, what makes you think that my daughter is going to be better than a goalie you already have? Well, she's going to have sweet gear. She's gonna, And that's what he said. <laughs> she's going to have sweet gear and she's going to have a dad who's hooked in with people who can train her. And how many people can say that their first goalie, personal goalie coach was Ben Vanderklok? Yeah. Which was Tori's goalie coach. And then Mitch Korn. And so she, you know, and to her credit, she had to put the the effort behind it and the attention to detail and the passion and she, she did it and you know it's embrace it and I always told Tori when I it, when I don't see you skating around with a smile on your face in that cage it's then it's it's over you know it's I don't care how far she goes um, and it's such an experience we talked about this tonight you'll have a great time with your daughter but once that smile has gone off the face then it's time to look for, for another avenue of, of sport or entertainment and, and, you know, just enjoy it while you can. And it, it will be fun. You'll, you'll have a blast, but you can't get too involved. Like everybody looks at, I've had a lot of coaches come up to me and say, you're not a psycho goalie parent, but you work in the, you work in the hockey business. Not only do you work in the hockey business, you're in the goalie sector. You should be over the top. I've had goalie parents that like, are, are nuts and you're not anything. I'm like, honestly, because I just, I understand it. I've seen it from different levels, NHL right down. It's about the kids. Parents love to compare. Kids love to compete. And I just want my kids to have fun. And uh, we should go somewhere. Great. If not, you know what? Let's not get crazy about things. It's the 1% and the chances you're going to be in the 1% are slim to none. That's all I'm hoping for. Yeah. I just want her to have fun. Exactly. That's all my dad ever did for me. Just let me play. Enjoy it. And yeah. you'll enjoy it. I, I see you're going to have fun with it. You're Encourage it. Your wife will go along with it. And she might <laughs> even become the crazy goalie parent. You never know. She might become the crazy goalie parent. You'll be like, hey, 
you got to sell down here. You're starting to embarrass us. I'll be hanging out in the corner of the rink. <laughs> yeah. Eating a pack of M&Ms like my dad. <laughs> That's what I do. Yeah. Stay away from everybody player. else. Do your own thing and just observe play. Yeah. yeah. So what's coming down the pipeline? If you had to look into the future, I mean, you've seen 30 years of goaltending and innovation and equipment and a huge amount of change in this time. Do you really see a new frontier that can be conquered here? You know, it, it's become increasingly more difficult with the parameters that the NHL have put on because they've really outlaid the design and the parameters of what the equipment could look like. But no, you know, I, I, I see there's a lot of companies out there that are working with technology that can replace foam. And anywhere there's foam, I think there could be an engineered structure that takes the place of foam. Hmm. Just like deer hair was replaced by foam. I think foam can be replaced by something else. Something a little more streamlined, something lighter, something that absorbs and dissipates and back, something that may be fine tuned. I, I just. Active suspension for goaltenders? Could be. Where, yeah. You know what? I, yeah. I think it, you know, it's, it, it's all going to come down to return on investment. Um, and that's the thing that I think would hold back the advancement is going to be because hockey's a small sport. Goaltending's one tenth the overall size of the hockey market, the goal equipment sector. Um, it's going to be the return on investment that's going to hold back the advancements, but there's a lot of possibilities out there. Cool. Yeah. I won't be around to see it other than being a hockey dad. <laughs> I hope I'm a retired and I could view it from afar. <laughs> yeah. Well, it'll so. be fun. Man, I'm sure we could do five more of these. And we're definitely going to have to come back and do just a strictly Tim Thomas equipment podcast special. Uh, yeah, we could fill up an hour on that. That's awesome. Well, thanks so much for sitting down for a little over yeah. an hour now. Thanks for having me. It's I can't wait to fun. go back for round two. Yeah, it's going to be fun. I all look right. forward to it. Thanks, thanks for All me. the best to you. Thanks for listening to Six Degrees with Mike McKenna. Please make sure that you like, comment, leave a rating, subscribe, whether it's iTunes, Google Play, Spotify, anywhere that you get your podcasts. Thanks for listening. For the ones who work hard to ensure their crew can always go the extra mile, and the ones who get in early, so everyone can go home on time. There's Granger, offering professional-grade supplies backed by product experts so you can quickly and easily find what you need. Plus, you can count on access to a committed team ready to go the extra mile for you. Call, click Grainger.com, or just stop by. Granger for the ones who get it done.